You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. You just heard Mark 1, 21 uh, through 45, uh, which in many ways describes a day in the life of Jesus, uh, particularly verses 21 through 39, literally is a 24-hour period with Jesus. And I couldn't help but thinking, uh, as I read and reflected on this day with Jesus, uh, what a day with God must be like. Uh, There's a passage uh, in Psalm 84, verse 10, that says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So the psalmist says, and I think all the disciples would agree, that a day in the court of the king is better than a thousand anywhere else. Uh, Just a day uh, with Jesus uh, is better than being or doing anything else. And the reason that's the case is because uh, what we get when we look at this day in the life of Jesus here in Mark chapter 1 is we get a glimpse of the kingdom to come. We get a glimpse of what it means for one day Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We get a picture of what it's like for Jesus to rule and reign fully and for Jesus to bring about the fullness of the kingdom. It's not come in totality yet, and yet as the king arrives, we get a glimpse of what this kingdom is. And so in many ways, Mark 1, 21 through 45 is this picture of longing for the kingdom to come and living for the king as we wait. It shows us how we are to live as we await uh, the return of Jesus. And you guys will remember back in verse 15. um, You'll remember uh, back in verse 15. um, Sorry, this is our first time to ever use a mic uh, today. Uh, It was amazing. Um, But uh, in verse 15, Jesus tells us, or we get a summary from Mark, that he shows up and he begins to preach the gospel. And he preaches the gospel and he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. We, we see in Mark 1.15 that the kingdom is at hand because the king has arrived. And yet we also know throughout the rest of the gospels and the teaching of Jesus is that we're to pray for the kingdom to come. It's clear, though, the king has arrived. The kingdom, his full reign, isn't realized in its totality. So we're in this already and not yet. This, uh, the kingdom is here, and yet the kingdom isn't. And, and sometimes it's hard to fully wrap our mind around that, but it's vital as we read through the Gospels to understand this picture of the kingdom coming in Christ, uh, and yet the kingdom is still to come. Um, but in the life and the ministry of Jesus, what we see throughout the Gospels and in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45 in particular, uh, we get this glimpse into what it's going to be like when Jesus fully is reigning on the throne, when the kingdom does fully come in our lives. Mark 1, 21 through 45 is going to show us the priority of preaching and a preview of the kingdom. And Jesus' ministry throughout uh, the three years in in which we have record of his ministry on the earth is this combination of word and deed. We see Jesus teaching and we see Jesus doing many miracles and and healing uh, many people. 
Uh, and, and these two things aren't separated, and that nor should they be pitted together. In fact, they go hand in hand. Jesus says miracles aren't something that's done to, uh, like, separate, something that's separate over here from his teaching, nor is his teaching disconnected from his miracles. In fact, consistently throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus' miracles are a validation, an affirmation, or a confirmation, if you will, of Jesus' identity and of his message. And so we see this interplay uh, throughout, but it's really striking in our passage. I want uh, to put this up so you can see this. There's this back-and-forth dynamic of teaching and healing that is in view in our passage today. We start in verses 21 through 22, and the thing that is noticed as Jesus comes into the synagogue at Capernaum is that he teaches with authority. And then we see in verses 23 uh, through 26 that Jesus has the authority to not only teach, but also to heal. And he cast out uh, this demon. And then we see that though he just cast out a demon, the conclusion in verses 27 through 28 is that they're amazed at this new teaching with authority. And then he goes on and he goes to Peter's house and there he is with Peter's mother-in-law and he heals Peter's mother-in-law from a fever and uh, she rises up and begins to, uh, to serve them as they're in the house. And, and then the, the very next morning, after staying up all night, continuing to heal people who are brought to him and cast out demons of those who are brought to him, he gets up early in the morning before it's dark or while it's still dark and he goes to pray and then we see his commitment to going on to the next towns, the next villages, so that he might preach, for this is why he has come. And then in verses 39 through 45, once more we see him uh, cleansing a man who is a leper. Um, and, uh, and, and instead of being unclean himself after cleansing him, he cleanses this leper by touching him. And then we, we won't look at this this week, but it's interesting. You get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and Jesus is going to combine these two things. He's going to heal a man, but he's going to heal a man in order to teach that he has the authority to forgive sins. And who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? That's the conclusion of the crowd that day. And that was the point that Jesus was seeking to teach. So we see this dynamic of Jesus's teaching always being connected to his miracles and vice versa. And that the miracles serve to validate who Jesus is and why he's come. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and today we're also going to see how the, the miracles are, are really letting us in, not only this validation of who Jesus is, but it's this, this picture of what's to come. And I think sometimes as we read and we reflect on Jesus' miracles and the healing that he does, there's this longing in every heart, uh, this desire uh, in every heart to say, man, I want to see that happen. Maybe it's in my life I want to see that happen or somebody's life that I love or, or the world around us that's just so full of sadness and sorrow. Like we want to see Jesus do those things. And, and we're going to see that Jesus does indeed work in such a way to, to, to continue to do miracles in many ways. And yet we see the uniqueness of what Jesus was doing in his ministry is to show us to what's to come for all those who trust in him. Um, and so uh, we're, we're going to see here uh, a glimpse of the kingdom. And the first thing I want us to see, we're going to walk through this passage together, starting in verse 21, is a glimpse of deliverance. Verses 21 and 22 tell us that Jesus begins teaching uh, in the synagogue and that the people are amazed at how he teaches with authority. And then, as I mentioned earlier, verses 27 through 28 conclude this uh, event uh, by pointing out uh, how uh, people were amazed at Jesus's teaching. Uh, the... <clears throat> 
the teaching isn't the, the content of the teaching isn't exactly declared here. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what he said. We, we can imagine that um, he taught in many ways like he had been teaching when he called uh, the first disciples, preaching the kingdom of heaven, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, uh, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe the good news. Uh, but elsewhere we see how he continually opened up the scriptures and showed people how the scriptures were fulfilled in him. Um, and and what's, what's really uh, unique here about this ministry is uh, Jesus has been in this area for just a little bit, but he's just now beginning his ministry in, in a place called Capernaum. You see that in verse 21. He's in Capernaum, which most likely is where Peter and uh, around Capernaum is where Peter and uh, Andrew lived and possibly the other disciples. And it becomes kind of Jesus's home base for a period of time. It's just a few miles from the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and there they are as he comes into Capernaum here on the on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue and most likely he's invited to teach in the synagogue. And, and as he does, he stands up and, uh, and he declares um, and teaches uh, from uh, the Old Testament, uh, not knowing what he said um, and not knowing exactly what he taught on. What we get a clear uh, sense of is the impression that it left on people. Um, it tells us that they, they noticed that he taught with one who had authority. And here's an important statement, not like the scribes. He taught as one who had authority, not like the scribes. In verse 27, we're told that Jesus' teaching, it was a new teaching. They, they said that they noticed that this was a new teaching. Um, and, and particularly, it was one with authority. Uh, he commands, he says in verse 27, even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Uh, there they are connecting the teaching and the healing together. They notice that they go together. Here's the best way to describe Jesus's teaching and why it's so unique and why it comes with such authority. You see, Jesus isn't like the scribes. Uh, and during that time, it would be common for the scribes to quote this rabbi or that rabbi to back up their interpretation of something. Uh, and there was much discussion about which rabbi you followed and who taught what. Jesus shows up and he teaches without reference to any rabbi. Jesus teaches without footnotes. Uh, because there is no source outside of himself that he needs in order to explain the Old Testament scriptures because he himself is the author. It's the difference in many ways between talking to somebody who has done a book review of a book and talking to the author themselves, right? Uh, Jesus is the author and he teaches as one who has authority without need to quote this or that rabbi because he not only understands the scriptures rightly, he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And, and he shows up and he begins to teach and people are amazed at what he has to say. And his authority in teaching is matched with his authority in healing this demon-possessed man. Now, I've never... I don't know that I, I've ever been, oh, maybe once or twice I've been in a church service where there's been a, um, an evident disruption. And so if any of you are thinking about doing that today, um, you know, uh, I guess it's here in the text, so maybe it's an application of the Bible somehow. But we'll presume that you have a demon and we'll act accordingly, all right? Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that's basically what happens. If you can just kind of imagine, here they are in the synagogue, and uh, this man who ha is, is possessed by a demon cries out, as Jesus is teaching. Jesus shows up and is teaching with such, such authority that it's as if uh, the demon cannot keep silent in the presence of the Holy One, and he cries out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We've already pointed out throughout the Gospel of Mark that 
Um, really, up until chapter 8, it's only the demons who accurately state who Jesus is. And, and here is the first glimpse of that as, um, as, he, uh, as he heals this demon-possessed man. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is, and his hunch as to why Jesus has come is exactly right. To destroy the works of the evil one, to destroy the devil and the spirit, evil spiritual forces that work in the world. And he cries out uh, and, and disrupts uh, what, what Jesus is doing in, in his teaching. Uh, every picture of a demon-possessed person uh, in the New Testament is, is a person in bondage. Truly a person who is enslaved to this evil spiritual uh, force at work in them allow, and not allowing them to even control themselves. Every picture is one who uh, is out of their mind or out of control. Sometimes they demonstrate uh, supernatural strength, sometimes demonstrating the inability to be reasoned with or to be communicated with. In every situation, it's a picture of total and complete bondage because of the demon possession. And uh, in, in this case, it's, it's no different. It's, it's truly uh, a picture uh, of, uh, of complete spiritual bondage. And Jesus, upon hearing it, speaks simply uh, in this way. He says, be silent. And then he commands the spirit. He rebukes the spirit and he commands the spirit uh, to come out of him in verse 25. And it says that the, uh, the demon comes out with him, convulsing the man and crying out with a, a loud shriek, uh, and he comes out of him. And there's no conclusion as to what happened at you know, the synagogue that day. But you can imagine everyone uh, is thinking about what's, what's happened. You know, there's, there's the kind of things that you see and you go, wow, that's cool. And then there's the kind of things that you see and you're like, wow, I need to rethink everything in my life. You know, like this is one of those moments. See, they're amazed at what has happened and they're trying to make sense of it. But it's abundantly clear that merely by speaking a word of rebuke, Jesus has conquered this demon and delivered this man. And the, the portrait, the glimpse of the kingdom is that in the kingdom of God, there is freedom from spiritual bondage that comes by the power of Jesus. In the kingdom of God, there is freedom from spiritual bondage that comes by the power of Jesus. That's what fully awaits all of us as Jesus returns. And we, we even begin to experience it as a person commits themselves and puts their trust in Christ. When we entrust ourselves to the king, we experience the freedom that, that he alone can bring. Even if we live in the world uh, and we are surrounded by spiritual forces that are at work in this world and even our own sinful desires within us that leave us at war in this world. Jesus is able to bring freedom from spiritual bondage. And the, the reality here is when we come, we come to the Bible and we, we think about uh, what it teaches us about the devil and about demons, about spiritual forces, uh, I think an encouragement to, uh, to us uh, that goes a long way is that we should neither be uh, dismissive of these realities, because the Bible is abundantly clear they're real, nor should we be obsessive about these realities as if they're more important than the powerful, uh, complete, conquering work of our resurrected and our risen Savior. Um, and, and so we should neither be dismissive of them nor obsessive over them, but instead what we should be is sober-minded about them. Um, and, and I think uh, as we see what's taking place here is, uh, is that throughout the scriptures, we see that there is a real uh, spiritual being called the devil. There are real spiritual beings called demons. There are real spiritual forces in the world. 
Now, these are things that we don't always see. Sometimes we are buffered by our, uh, our sometimes our own perspective. Maybe it's technology sometimes that uh, keeps us unaware of things that are going around us. But there are real spiritual forces at work in the world. And Jesus is clearly teaching here that he has authority to conquer those spiritual forces. He has authority over Satan and demons. It is not a picture of the force, uh, the the dark uh, force of Satan and the the light force of God at work and these two equal powers battling it out. It is a picture of God in his sovereignty and his power and his dominion ruling and reigning over all and yet there being a real spiritual uh, presence and evil in this world that will not be vanquished until he returns. The death blow has been issued at the resurrection of Christ. That he, he stepped on uh, the head of the serpent, if you will. Uh, and one day he is coming to throw Satan and the demons in the lake of fire and to fully and completely bring about deliverance from those spiritual forces. But we live in a world where these spiritual, uh, both evil spiritual realities are at work as well as God's spiritual realities are at work. And the, the Gospel of Mark uh, just throws us totally into that. And sometimes we look at that and we're like, I don't know what to think about that. I don't know, you know, how, sh- how should I understand these things? And, and, and what I would say is I think all of us know uh, that there are things within us <laughs> that, that are uh, at times lead us astray. And there are things going around us in the world that lead us astray. And time and time again, consistently, the Bible says behind the curtain, many times we don't see, there are these spiritual forces at work. And, and Mark 1, 21 through 28 here tells us that Jesus has the authority over those spiritual forces and he has the ability to free us from bondage to them. And as I think about what that means for us now and, and the significance of that for us now, I want us to, to understand that if you put your trust in Christ, we have access to the power of God through trust in Jesus and through submitting to his word. Consider these passages that speak to this reality. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, John is speaking to the different groups in the church, and he particularly says this to the young men, uh, but it's true of anyone who is in Christ. He says, you have conquered the evil one. It speaks as if it's done through the work of Christ. You've conquered the evil one. 1 John 5, 3 through 4, John says, He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. A reminder of the authority of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus came uh, in order to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, spiritual bondage, and physical and spiritual death. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Whoever makes the practice of sinning, who goes on sinning without repentance, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God has appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. So consistently throughout the scriptures, we see that we have access to the power of God through submitting to Jesus and his word. And when we look at the scriptures, we understand that we don't use Jesus in order to get power over spiritual forces. No, Jesus is the one who has power, so we come to him and we submit to him. 
We come to him and we cry out asking him to intervene at work in the world. When there are things beyond our control that we don't understand, we're asking him to intervene. We're, we're reminding ourselves when the accusation of our sin arises in our hearts and our minds that there is one who has conquered the evil one. And if I'm in him, then I too have conquered the evil one. We, we remind ourselves that there is deliverance from lifelong slavery, whatever we have been bound to in our sin. There is true victory to be had in Christ. It doesn't always mean that it's going to come complete and come fully in the moment we request it, but it means that we can count on God delivering us from the bondage of sin and enabling us to walk in obedience to Him. And the already not yet of the kingdom, we can be confident that we're forgiven of our sin, that we're freed from the power of sin, and though the presence of sin exists within us and in the world around us, one day when Jesus returns, even the very presence of sin will be vanquished and the evil one will be cast down into the lake of fire, and there will be full and complete deliverance. It's a picture, a glimpse of the kingdom, deliverance from spiritual bondage. When the king is present, when the king is present, there is deliverance. But we also see a glimpse of restoration in verse 29. It goes on, and we see that uh, Jesus, uh, transitioning from the synagogue, leaves the synagogue and goes to Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Those are just called that we saw last week in verse 16 through 20. And as they come in, it's, it becomes apparent that uh, the mother-in-law of Peter is sick. And she's sick with a fever. Um, and apparently they didn't have any Tylenol to give her, right? Like all he had to do is just give her some Tylenol. Uh, no, it, to have a fever um, is, a, is a pretty significant thing at this time. It could very well mean someone's death, right? To, to not understand what's happening, to not know what's happening to them. And uh, in fact, in Luke chapter 4, at, Luke tells us, who was a doctor by trade, says that she had a very high fever. And I love that dynamic that Luke, uh, you know, the doctor types are super specific. Um, but the word is that Mark... Uh, actually had Luke's notes about Peter's mother-in-law, uh, but he just couldn't read them. So that's why he left out that there it was very high. Um, <laughs> all, all the doctor friends in there, that was for you guys. I'm just kidding. That's not true. But um, <clears throat> uh, there's a real, there's a, there's a, there's a fever. Uh, and Luke tells us a very high fever. It's a very serious uh, situation. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law is very sick. And the disciples tell Jesus clearly with the desire for him to do something about it. And so we see that Jesus um, almost very, very serenely and very simply says he, he went to her. This is in uh, verse 31. He went to her, he took her by the hand, and he raised her up. And then we're told that the fever left her and she began to serve them. He went to her, took her by the hand, and he picked her up. He lifted her up and the fever was gone. Simply by his touch, by the power of his word, he casts out demons. By the touch of his hand, he heals from a sickness. And, and we see this picture of, uh, of not only uh, restoration and physical health, but even restoration. And we see the, the, the immediate healing brings about her serving. Uh, simply desiring to serve Jesus. I, I don't know if any of you have, you know, have that... Uh, kind of coming out of being sick, there's this moment where like once you're finally starting to feel better, it's kind of like, oh yeah, like I can actually get up and do things again, you know, like 
uh, takes sometimes a little bit of uh, time for us to get our strength back and to get our feet underneath us to to go about doing things. And if you're a, if you're a guy, you know we the, the man cold. It's very real. Like it sometimes is hard to get over it, right? And um, it's I think it's scientifically proven. And uh, and so it's it, you're trying to recover, and, and sometimes it's hard to get strength back. Here we see the immediacy of her being healed and beginning uh, to serve. In the kingdom of God, what Jesus is telling us is that there will be complete restoration from all physical sickness. Oh, how we long for that day to come in the present. But here is a glimpse of what's to come when the kingdom comes in its fullness, that there will be complete restoration from all physical sickness, a restoration that, that, that even leads to an enjoyment of, of serving God. And we get a glimpse of this restoration even more so in verses 32 through 34. It says, when evening came after the sun had set, they brought all the sick and the demon possessed to Jesus. You see, Jesus came on the Sabbath into Capernaum teaching and everybody had heard about what, took that, what went down in the synagogue that day. But most likely because of fear that maybe it would be seen as doing work on the Sabbath. Everybody waited until the sun was down. And then when the sun went down, they all came to Jesus. They all came to Peter's mother-in-law's house. You know, and uh, you, you can imagine, you know, she's like, man, I was just sick this morning. Now I got everybody at my house, you know, uh, wanting to see Jesus. And, and there Jesus is ministering to the needs of everyone after the sun has gone down freeing those who are possessed by demons, healing those who have come to him. It says he, he came to the whole town, uh, was assembled at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons, verse 34 tells us. It didn't matter what sickness they brought, Jesus had authority over it. It didn't matter what strength or what nature of demon possession they had, Jesus was able uh, to free them from their spiritual bondage. And just like we saw in the synagogue, he would tell the demons not to speak because they knew him. It wasn't that Jesus didn't want people to know him. It was what he knew. He wasn't ready for them to know why he came just yet. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't ready for, uh, for it to be known the work that he was going to do on their behalf. They're going to the cross and his resurrection, but it becomes clear throughout the gospel. But I, I love the picture of Jesus here in this part of the passage, a long day, lots of good ministry already done. I mean, anybody would say you've earned your rest. Anybody would say it's, it's good to take a break. But here's Jesus after the sun's down, healing people, casting out demons long after the sun had set. And here's the thought that came to my mind as I, I read this passage, and I think that should encourage all of us. Jesus never gets tired of needy people. Jesus never gets tired of needy people. I don't know if you've ever felt needy. I have lots of times in my life. I've been physically needy before. I've shared when I became a believer as a teenager, my parents weren't believers. They didn't care to take me to church. The only way I got to church is if somebody picked me up. I hated being needy. I hated asking for things. But in God's grace, he continually put people around me who never got tired of me being needy. I don't know if you felt other, at other times that you're needy, maybe too much of a mess, and maybe you don't feel like you have your act together. Maybe uh, because of that, you would rather shy away from other people or even convince yourself that maybe God doesn't want to, to work in your life or can't work in your life. Be encouraged today to know that Jesus never gets tired of needy people, which is to say Jesus never gets tired of us. 
because they're one and the same. When, when you feel like you need somebody to sit with you in your sorrow, go to Jesus. When you feel like you need somebody to, to just listen, go to Jesus. When, when you feel like you need answers to your questions, go to Jesus. When, when you feel like, uh, like nothing makes sense and, and you need help to make sense of it all, to guide you through the confusion or for an important decision, go to Jesus. When you feel like you have no other options, when you feel like there's nothing else to do, go to Jesus. When you feel like no one sees you, when you feel like no one cares, go to Jesus because He never gets tired of needy people. He sees, He knows, He cares. He alone is the answer. In our darkness, in our pain, in our sorrow, in our questioning, in our wondering. He alone is the one that we can go to time and time again. And as we come to Him in our loneliness, as we come to Him in our need, as we come to Him in our questioning, we're never depleting Him. We're never depleting Him of His strength, never depleting Him of His wisdom, never never taking out of Him. He always has what we need and we can always come to Him with our need. It is good news that we have a Savior who doesn't get tired of needy people. Long after the sun's down, long after anyone else cares, long after anyone else is looking, you can go to Jesus and know that He cares. We see a glimpse of deliverance in Jesus. After ministering long into the night, it says in verse 35, a transition takes place and we begin to see Jesus' priority and purpose. At some point, the healing service, so to speak, ended at the door at Peter's mother-in-law's house. And verse 35 tells us very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, he went out, and he made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. It's here that we find Jesus' source of power, as well as an important clarification as to why he came. We see the source of his power is that he lived in constant communion with the Father that's revealed here through prayer. He retreats early to a deserted place to be with the Father, to to pray, to commit himself to the Father, to submit himself to the Father's will, just as we see him doing in the Garden of Gethsemane at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. What do we see Jesus doing alone with the Father, submitting himself to his will, saying, your will be done, not my will be done. He comes to accomplish the will of the Father. He does so in dependence upon the Father. And while Jesus is praying, the disciples come to him and their statement is, man, it's awesome, Jesus. You got up and you're out here praying. Like, maybe we should join you. You know, they're like, hey, everyone's looking for you, Jesus. Like, come on, we got work to do. There's there's good ministry to be done. Everybody is waiting for you. We're sold out. The news outlets are picking up on it. People previously didn't even know about Capernaum, and now everybody's coming to Capernaum. Jesus, like, come on, we got to go. And it's it, it is a striking reality throughout Jesus's ministry that his teaching did amaze people, but it was his healing that flocked made people flock to see Jesus. And Jesus knew it throughout the Gospels. We're told that he often doesn't entrust himself to people because he knows their intention of what they came to see. Not to hear the message he proclaimed, but to to see the miracles that he could do. And Jesus wasn't impressed with the crowds because that's not why he came. So we see that the source of his power was prayer, but then we see that his purpose is to proclaim the gospel. 
It was in proclamation of the gospel. I think this is important to understand. Why preach? Why teach? Why is that so important? Because we see, this is drawing from verses 14 through 15, we see that it's in proclaiming the gospel that Jesus made clear why he came. The reason he came was to bring about the promised kingdom of God, to bring about the salvation uh, that God had promised. And we see also in his preaching how we're to receive the kingdom. The kingdom is to be received by repentance and belief, by repentance and faith. So it's, it's in preaching that helps us understand the significance of the miracles. The, the miracles were confirming the message. The, the one who was calling us to repentance and faith, he's the one who has power over the demons and over sickness and over death. So listen to his message. Ready your heart to repent and believe. That's the whole point. And then most likely this astonished the disciples because they're enjoying some hometown ministry here. And Jesus is like, it's time for us to move on. The reason I came was to preach, he says. Let's go, verse 38, to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. There are a lot of things that we can say about Jesus. And there is a temptation in every age to want to make Jesus uh, passionate about whatever our issue is. Uh, we, want, we want a Jesus who, uh, who speaks to these social issues as an activist in this way or does these things. And time and time again, Jesus will not be forced into our mold because he came to preach. He came to proclaim a message. And no doubt he, he did many miracles that, that demonstrated the validity of that message and give us a glimpse and a, a hope of what's to come in the future. But he said, as we await his return and in his own coming, he showed us what, what we are, what's to define us in our ministry, and that's the proclamation of the gospel. It's in many ways um, instructive for us as believers for how we live in the already not yet kingdom. We, we pray for and we desire for God to, to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as we wait, here we see we do exactly what Jesus, should, tells, what Jesus does is exactly what we should do. We proclaim the gospel. We see this consistently throughout the scriptures that the priority of preaching the gospel uh, is front and center for Jesus. And if the preaching of the gospel was a priority for Jesus, it must be a priority for the church. Listen to Acts 2.42. tells us that the, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles in Acts 6 tell uh, the church that it's necessary for them to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Paul tells Timothy, as he does ministry at Ephesus, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And in 2 Timothy 4.2, in last words as he gives to Timothy, he tells Timothy, and it's instructive to every pastor of a church, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The preaching of the gospel is the priority of the church. There are other things that we do, like serving, like seeking to display the gospel. We, we just had a serve A2Y week. Some of you may have seen some of the things we did. A number of you participated. We were able to bless about 24 businesses. We were able to give uh, 100 or so sack lunches to Hope Clinic as they serve people throughout the week. We were able to serve with the Parks and Rec in Ann Arbor to bless the fire department in Ypsilanti. Uh, we were able to, to go and learn about family life services and the ministry they're doing to care for and serve women who are facing unplanned pregnancies. We, we were able to bless people at a park. We, we do all of that 
out of an overflow to be a blessing, to, to display the love of Christ, the, the heart of the gospel to people around us. But we know that displaying the gospel is only part of what God has called us to do. We display the gospel in hopes that God gives us opportunities to declare the gospel because the preaching of the gospel is to be the priority of the church as it was the priority of Jesus. And why is that the case? Look at Romans 10, 14 through 17. Paul tells us why we need to preach. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? Paul goes on to say, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But not all have obeyed the gospel, because Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so the conclusion is this, faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. This is why we must preach. And understand me, I'm not talking about what I'm doing. I'm talking about what we must do as God's people. Yes, preaching happens in a pulpit, but preaching happens every day in all kinds of opportunities and conversations as we bear witness to the good news of Jesus, what he's done for us, the freedom from spiritual bondage, the, the hope that we have of what's to come, the forgiveness of sins, the salvation that comes through faith in Christ. The preaching of the gospel is so essential because we only will receive the fullness of the kingdom if we have received the message of the king. What Jesus is giving us a glimpse into, what all of us long for, the day in which all the sad things come untrue and all the wrong things become right and God executes justice upon all those who have rebelled against him and delivers all those who have trusted in him. That desire, that longing can only be true for us. The, the coming kingdom is only good news for us if we've received the message of the king. If we've received the message of the gospel, the word of Christ, of his death and his, of his resurrection. So here we see Jesus' priority in preaching. We see his commitment to making known this message. And not only is it him making known this message, what's amazing about Jesus proclaiming the kingdom is that Jesus proclaiming the kingdom necessarily meant he understood why he came. To proclaim the kingdom, that salvation is fulfilled, that, that through repentance and faith we can have forgiveness of sins, necessarily meant that he knew what he was going to do on the cross and in the resurrection. We preach that message based on the, the completed reality of what Jesus has done. Jesus came announcing that message and in doing so announcing why he came and what he was coming to do. He was coming to save us from our sin. He was coming to deliver us from spiritual bondage, to give us a new life. That's good news. And it tells us at this point in verse 39 that he went into Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A summary statement of what he began to do. But verse 40 transitions to whether it was shortly that same day or some time later, we don't exactly know. But here we get a glimpse of cleansing. In verses 40 through 45, verse 40 draws us back and it gives us this once more a glimpse of the kingdom of God to come. And it says that Jesus is approached by a man with leprosy. Now, best way to think about leprosy is just think about how you felt being around other people in, say, March or April 2020. Um, 
That's how people felt about being around lepers, right? Uh, like that was the equivalent. Uh, we were all lepers then. Um, and that's, that's what it was like to be a leper at this point. They were, in, they, were, they were commanded to remove themselves from society. In part, this was in God's wisdom to keep people from getting leprosy and getting sick. Uh, but also, uh, it, it, it led to, in many ways, being a complete outcast in society because of this disease. And if you were lucky and the disease wasn't bad and you could demonstrate that you were healed, then you could go and be restored by the priest and kind of brought back in. Uh, but if not, you were pretty much permanently an outcast. And this man comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus in verse 40, it says he begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's an interesting statement because he doesn't say if uh, you are willing, will you make me clean? He knows Jesus has the power. He asked Jesus if he is willing. And I love this picture because this man's desperation as he begged Jesus for healing meets Jesus's compassion. It says that Jesus was moved with compassion or moved with pity. And then the horror of what unfolded is hard for us to appreciate. But in the first century, it would have been nothing less than shocking Jesus, who has the power to cast out a demon by speaking a word, could have spoken a word to heal this man with leprosy. But instead, he reaches out his hand and touches him. Which for any other Jewish person at the time or any other person would have made them unclean and therefore needing to do the very same thing that the leper needed to do. But Jesus... <clears throat> doesn't get leprosy. Instead, he heals the man of leprosy. Jesus says in response to him, I am willing. I am willing. Be made clean. And he stretches out his hand and touches him. It's as if Jesus were taking on, if you will, the curse of leprosy. But rather than himself getting leprosy, he heals this man of his leprosy. It's striking. I heard it described this way and it stuck out to me in preparation that the leper being an outcast and unable to move freely among the people, after being um, cleansed, he was brought back in. Jesus told him to go to the priest and make sacrifice and to, in essence, be reinstated back into the community. Um, but he, he tells Jesus, uh, Jesus tells him not to go about uh, telling anyone. Uh, so that just like with the demons, that people wouldn't misunderstand why he's come and what he's come to do and when he's come to do it. Uh, and, and we see that pattern of, of kind of secrecy, if you will, until the time is right. But rather than keeping quiet, uh, the man, uh, apparently, we listen worse than the demons listen. Because rather than keeping quiet, the man goes into town and tells everyone. And it says in verse 45 that Jesus is unable to do uh, ministry um, and instead, he had to, to go out into the deserted places. And even as he's out in the deserted places, people come and find him. We see this kind of exchange, if you will, between the leper and Jesus. The leper who was an outcast and unable to move freely among people is cleansed and brought back into the community. And now Jesus, having cleansed him, is pushed out to the deserted places and unable to move freely among the people. It's just a, just a glimpse, if you will, of what actually happens, what Paul tells us happens when, when Christ dies on the cross for our sin, the exchange of the righteous for the unrighteous. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We get what only God has, the righteousness of God. And, and he takes upon himself the judgment for our sin, the unrighteousness, even though he had none and gives us what we had none of. He has no sin. We have no righteousness apart from him. He takes our sin upon himself and gives us righteousness through faith in him. That's the exchange. That's the picture of the gospel that Jesus takes our place for our sin so that we might become children of God and brought into the family of God. Jesus doesn't become unclean when he touches the leper. Jesus doesn't become a sinner when he dines with sinners. But Jesus has the power to bear the judgment of our sin And to offer us forgiveness, to take the curse of our uncleanness, of our inability to come before God and be a part of the family of God and bring us in through his work on our behalf. It's a picture of the full and total cleansing that will be ours in the kingdom of God, fully in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, fully brought into God's family to enjoy forever in his presence. There's one, one note that I want to conclude on uh, here, though, as I think about this and, and I think about Jesus' healing ministry throughout the Scriptures. <clears throat> and it, it flows out of what the man asked Jesus here in, in verse, verses 40 through 45. He asked Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And, <clears throat> and part of the, the challenge of, of reading uh, the, the healing work of Jesus throughout the Gospels is the is that, that sense of longing that we all have in our own lives to see people that we know that are sick to be healed, to see uh, terrible things that have happened, to, we wish they wouldn't have happened, things that we've prayed for that uh, didn't end up going the way that we wanted. I, I thought to myself as I read this, what about when Jesus isn't willing? It comes to your mind, if you're willing, are there times when he's not willing? What, what about when you pray and he doesn't answer the prayer? What about when you're longing for God to heal and he doesn't heal? What about when sorrow enters our lives and, and sadness strikes us before we even had an opportunity to pray? The person that we love is gone before we even know to ask God to intercede. And these very things are, are some of the heaviest burdens and griefs that we carry in our lives. It speaks to the difficulty of living between the times and the already and the not yet. The longing for God to, to show up and, and do a miracle and, and understanding that the scriptures teach us <clears throat> that God is at work in our sorrow. He's at work in our sickness to make us more like Him, to bring about glory to His name. There's this, this sense as we look at this passage, it's a reminder to us that Jesus isn't promising to always heal. That's not the point of what Jesus is doing here. What he is doing is he's pointing forward to a day when there will be full and complete healing for all those who are in him. There is a day coming, a kingdom uh, that is coming in which there will be no more sickness. There will be no more spiritual bondage. There will be no more death. That's the day we're longing for. That's the day we're looking for. And Jesus is giving us this little glimpse into it now. 
And just think about all the people. Inevitably, there was somebody at the end of the line that Jesus didn't heal that night at Peter's house. There was some other leper along the way that didn't get healed by Jesus. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law from her fever, but you know what happened? At some point later in time, she died. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But do you know there came a time when Lazarus got killed later? Uh, there's, this, there's this real sense and in this already not yet of the kingdom, there's this hope of God to show up and break through, and yet there's this sadness of the reality of life in a fallen world and a sin-stained world. And how do we make sense of all of that to, to live in this world and long for Jesus to show up, long for Jesus to work in these ways? And I just want to encourage us that we have a king who is coming again and who is going to make good on his promises. There is going to be a day when sickness will be healed. There is going to be a day when, as Sally Lloyd-Jones says, all the sad things will come untrue. There is going to be a day when all the wrongs will be made right and when death will be no more. When the tears that fill our hearts and the grief that fills our souls will be wiped away. We, we know that there is a day coming in which in our sorrow and our suffering we'll we'll see the the fullness of what God was doing and have our eyes open to to who He is and to what He was at work accomplishing in our lives. Revelation 21, 3-4 speaks of this day. I think this is the glimpse of of what's to come. And what, what Revelation 21 says is going to come, what I want us to understand today is that when the kingdom comes, we, we can count on this to be true because of who the king is, according to Mark 1. He's going to make good on his promise. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. The previous things have passed away, and the one seated on the throne, the king who is Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the lion who rules and reigns, Jesus says, look, I am making everything new. And in Mark 1, 21 through 45, we, we get this glimpse of the kingdom that's to come, what it's going to be like when God makes everything new. And as we wait, what we do is we pray. We plead with God. God, let your will be done on earth as it is in the heaven. God, would you show up and would you work in ways that only you can do, breaking into the present sickness and sorrow and grief that fills our heart. God, work. We can pray and trust that God hears and answers our prayers. Sometimes he answers our prayers through the physical healing and deliverance in this life. But according to... To Revelation 21, we have the good hope and and secure foundation that he's going to make good on it in the kingdom to come. And so we pray, and just like Jesus, we keep proclaiming the gospel because it's the gospel that tells us this hope is coming for all those who have put their trust in the king. Let's pray.